and welcome to a newsflash episode of Unpacking the Case, the podcast by David Jones-Bold, the real estate law specialists. As always, I'm joined by our head of legal training, Richard Snape. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unpacking the Case, the podcast by David Jones-Bold, the real estate law specialists. As always, I'm joined by our head of legal training, Richard Snape. Enjoy. Hello, Richard. Hello, Lizzie. And how are you? Very good. Not bad for a Friday, thank you. And yourself? Oh, not, too, not too bad. Long day, <laughs> long week of work. I'm just... Uh, but I'll finish in a few hour or two's time. Perfect. Um, so we're, we did, we've done quite a few webinars now on the Building Safety Act over the last few months. Um, but in particular, we, want, we, we ran one at the beginning of this week, I think. Um, and there was a lot of questions, as expected. Um, people s- still have a lot of questions in relation to the changes that have been coming through. And there were some that we weren't able to address during the time we had. So we thought we'd run um, a quick podcast episode just to run through some of those questions that we didn't get to. So I'm going to start with um, one question here about the 10 year period. I think that's in relation to, well, can you just remind me what that one's in relation to? Uh, it's in relation, I imagine it's in relation to the building regs enforcement periods, which changed on October the 1st in England, not Wales, but in England, it used to be an enforcement period. Wicklow authorities could take enforcement action for building regulations breaches for up to a year. They can actually prosecute for up to two years, but um, the enforcement period, regardless of breaches, a year, uh, or was a year, I should say, and it went up to uh, 10 years on October the 1st. Um, okay. What was the question? Yeah, so they're just asking, Does this is this 10-year period retrospective? Oh, right, yeah. Well, people have asked me that a lot because it's not clear and you can't get much when well, there's no government guidance I've seen and it's November the 10th now. It's been around for six weeks. Um, they... Um, all the legislation says is the under the Building Safety Act. I think it's Section Thirty Nine. It just says, amongst other things, uh, in Section Thirty Six of the uh, the Building Act, nineteen eighty four, which deals with the enforcement periods, uh, for one year substitute to ten years. Uh, so it now reads ten years, but it's not clear at all. I mean, if you take it at face value, it seems to be retrospective, but I can't believe that was necessarily what was intended. Um, so it's a tricky one. If you look, I did try and look at, you know, in the past, I've looked at you know, government guidance and websites, and there's absolutely nothing. If you look at the planning portal, which is where people are supposed to get this information, it hasn't been updated. It still says one year. You know, this is government documents and websites that people rely on. Uh, so it's a bit of a moot point. Um, but um, perhaps we'll let you know if something concrete happens, but as it Basically, it just reads 10 years now. Enforcement period is 10 years. Okay, another question then, please. Um, Where can I find out if a building is listed on the high-risk building register? Um, well, currently, again, you can't. That's another problem. It's, uh, it's like much of the Building Safety Act, it's completely ill-thought-out. Um, and there is this register, you know, existing buildings in England, high-risk buildings, which are either or seven stories or 18 metres or more in height have to be registered by the regulator. Uh, and existing ones, new builds also have to be registered, but existing ones um, have to be registered between April the 6th and October the 1st, but there's no sort of you know, public document of what's been registered and what's not. I think you'd have to raise inquiry 
about, you know, has the property actually been registered? One of the other problems I didn't really stress too much because time didn't permit is if you read the legislation at face value, if an existing higher risk building hasn't been, it's going to have at least two dwellings in it as well, but if it hasn't been registered by October the 1st, there doesn't seem to be scope, scope to be able to register it after October the 1st. So it's blighted forevermore. Another question, what evidence can we rely on in respect of a building's registration with the building safety regulator, noting that the register hasn't been published? I think that's probably the same question as we just had, actually. I mean, there isn't a public document that's, uh, that you can sort of rely on. I think the only thing that you should do, um, is both people purchasing individual leasehold flats in the premises and high-risk buildings, and also necessarily people um, buying the reversion uh, uh you should raise inquiry about it you know if then they tell a pack of lies then you know at least you've got a claim in misrepresentation the um cpsc inquiries for the commercial properties if you're buying the reversions like cpsc sixes uh changed in september uh, but only to deal with leaseholder protections and not higher risk buildings so they haven't actually got any the CPSC sixes are the you know, buying a commercial property with a residential element attached to it. Um, so I'd, I'd just raise an, an additional inquiry. That's the answer. That's the only thing I can really suggest. Thank you. Um, another question, which I think we did manage to cover in the webinar, but there's no harm in recapping. I don't think is the ten thousand pound cap per leaseholder or for the whole building? Um, well, this, I presume this is again the um, the fact that. Uh, even if the landlord didn't meet the contribution condition that their associate's net worth was uh, not more than £2 million uh, on February the 14th, 2022, or they are not in some way associated with the developer, the landlord, as they were on that day, um, then you're limited in charging for safety work £10,000 in any 10-year period of £15,000 if you're in London. It's per qualifying leaseholder. It's only qualifying leaseholders, but it's not per building. It's per qualifying leaseholder. Thank you. Um, is safety work that has been undertaken capable of being recharged in retrospect? Uh, recharged in terms of adding to the service charge or getting the money back? I presume getting the money back. Uh, there is provision, which again, it was in my notes, but time didn't permit. Uh, there's something called remediation contribution orders, whereby you anybody... Uh, affected can basically sort of list of people, you know, people with a legal or equitable interest in the property, or uh, since August Homes England or fire authorities and like local authorities, building safety regulator can apply to the first tier tribunal uh, to get money back. Uh, retrospectively, going back to June the 28th, 1992. Uh, and the tribunal can order that if it's uh, just and equitable, I think the words are, to do so. There is a case on it um, from earlier this year, Batesian-inspired Sutton. I've always thought of Sutton in Greater London as being inspired, uh, where work was done, I think, in sort of 2021, replacing timber uh, balconies in a high-rise block. Uh, and uh, they actually paid the money, and then when they remediation contributions came into you know into existence in June of 2028 uh, 2023 not 2028 uh then um, they applied to get the money back uh and succeeded it depends a lot on its facts but um 
in that particular case, for instance, the the um, landlord is also the developer. Uh, but there is that possibility for historic service charge payments going back to June 1992. Thank you. Um, question now about building height. I think we had quite a lot of questions and, and we always tend to get similar questions on this in these webinars um, about what constitutes um, different levels. Um, but this question in particular is asking, what if the ground level is not accessible by the fire service? Does that reduce the height further? There's nothing in the legislation, and I'm pretty sure there's nothing in the guidance that says says so. I mean, it seems to be, I know, I know there's a lot of problems in relation to the government guidance as to how you measure the height of high-risk buildings, and the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors have more or less said that I mean, it's pretty unworkable in its margins. So um, I can't think there's anything that sort of limits that now. A similar question then on um, kind of stories of buildings. Can you please outline how the legislation applies differently to buildings of five storeys or 11 metres and buildings of seven storeys or 18 metres? Yeah, the leaseholder protections apply to buildings of either 11 metres or more in height or five or more storeys. I've I've seen people say it doesn't apply to this property because it's, it's only four storeys. It's their alternatives. Barclays and their part twos of the, in the lender's handbook don't seem to realise, and I do wish Barclays had learned to spell stories correctly and not have it as a work of fiction. Uh, but uh, they, um, they're their alternatives. That's for the leaseholder protections, the service charge caps. Uh, the seven or more stories or 18 metres in height is higher risk buildings. So if you've got a building 18 metres or more in, uh, in height or seven or more stories, you come within both of them. Thank you. Just a question about um, qualifying leaseholders again, going back to that. What does the qualifying leaseholder relate to? Are there are qualifying leases protected by the cap and are properties that are not qualifying leases potentially subject to higher costs? Uh, well, the, the simple answer is, yeah. I mean, the, the problem with the legislation is that everything's crystallised on February the 14th, 2022. It's not whether you're within the definition today of a qualifying leaseholder. It's the person who held the lease on February the 14th, 2022. And if that person wasn't a qualifying leaseholder, no one else from that moment onwards is a qualifying leaseholder and the property is blighted. It does say in the um, lender's handbook, well, a lot of individual mortgage, you've got to tell people, you've got to tell the mortgage company if they're, you know, the premises, you know, it wasn't a qualifying lease sold on February the 14th, 2022. And a lot of the mortgagees who said anything in their part two is basically saying that you've got to tell us as soon as possible because we may withdraw the mortgage offer. So it massively affects property. But I think that gave the, why it's so stupid a piece of legislation is, you know, you can always, you can claim up to you know, three properties. You can always claim for your, if the flat's your principal home. But if you've got uh, more than three prop uh, properties, not just flats, but dwellings throughout the UK, uh, unless that flat's your principal home, you can't qualify. You're not a qualifying leaseholder, but that's all on February the 14th, 2022. So if the person who held the lease on February the 14th, 2022 had 10 flats up and down the country as investments uh, and didn't live in this particular flat as their principal home, Anybody from that moment onwards who purchases that property it might be their principal home, but they're not qualifying leaseholder. And it's, I'll leave the values to tell you how much, but it affects mortgageability and value. It also affects the insurance potential. 
question on um, EWS ones. Again, I think we managed to answer this one, but it's worth recapping because I'm sure mm -hmm. many people will be thinking it. What's the position on them on the EWS one forms yeah, now, and are they still required? Yeah, these external wall fire reviews that came in at the end of 2019. They're not legislation. It's just uh, it's something that was concocted by primarily the RICS uh, together with the UK Finance and the um, and the um, Building Societies Association. Uh, and basically, if the valuer tells the mortgagee we want one, there are alternatives now. But if the valuer tells the mortgagee this is what we want, uh, then the mortgagee can still insist on it. Either side of Christmas uh, last year, half a dozen of the big mortgage companies, including Lloyd's Group, were the first, but also people like Santander and NatWest and Nationwide and HSBC, um, somebody else, I think, uh, basically said if uh, if you're part of a remediation scheme, uh, you know, sort of government or you know, developer remediation scheme, then we wouldn't require an EWS one. I don't think I think it was HSBC, but don't take me up on it. Halifax were the other one, but uh, they they basically said um, uh, again we'll basically leave down to the valuer. Uh, I suppose a few other things which you know, we didn't really discuss, you know, time didn't permit going into detail about the EWS ones, is that uh, Rick's are saying that if you've got an up-to-date fire safety risk assessment under the Fire Safety Act of 2021, which we did deal with, and you've carried out the work required, then they shouldn't require an EWS one. And uh, it's in the, well, Rick said some years ago that if you've got building regs in under the 2018 building regs, which is for 18 meter or more in height buildings, then you shouldn't need an EWS one. There's actually some 2019 building regs that apply in Wales, but they, they don't uh, mention them, but I presume the same. Okay, thank you for that one. If the landlord doesn't serve a certificate within the relevant time period once they're notified of the sale of a property, have they missed their chance or can they serve on another trigger event? That's something, um, I think I know what the question is, but that's something which is... Um, it's not 100% clear, and it's something that people have been asking me. Basically, um, I mean, this is with a disclaimer on my part because it's a huge, huge issue. But uh, the it's it's the schedule, Schedule 8 of the, um, of the Building Safety Act, which is causing all the problems, actually, and what's in Schedule 8. And it's paragraph 14 basically says that if you haven't, you know, it's not the, word, the exact wording, but if you haven't uh, complied with providing a certificate um, in time, in the times you should, then uh, you're deemed uh, to have met the contribution condition at the relevant time. The relevant time is February the 14th, 2022. And you're deemed to have met the contribution condition. And the contribution condition is paragraph three. And that's the thing that says if the landlord together with associates and the likes, has a net worth of more than £2 million per effective building, uh, then um, they can't charge for safety work via service charge. So if you take those two together, it's not made clear in the landlord's certificates. But if you take those two together, it seems that never, you know, you can't charge ever again, including successor landlords. Who pays for the works if the flat is less than £325,000 and the landlord is a minor entity and the building is less than 11 metres? Uh, well, 
It's uh, less than three hundred. It's it, the value of the flat is going to be less than three hundred twenty-five thousand on February the fourteenth, twenty twenty-two. Three hundred twenty-five thousand is the figure for Greater London. The rest of the country, it's one hundred seventy-five thousand. Um, if uh, your flat's worth less than that, the landlord can't charge for safety work, no matter who they are. Um, and if the landlord can't charge for safety work in a, in a flat that's less than 175,000, 325,000, they basically foot the bill. Um, if, uh, so, you know, you might just ask the question if the landlord is a minor entity and the landlord can't afford to pay what happens next. We might just find that they've got an absentee landlord or an insolvent landlord, unfortunately. Uh, if the flat is less than 11 metres in height, unless it's five storeys or more, and if it's less than 11 metres, you're supposed to measure from the base of the, the ground to the um, to the, you know, the floor, the polished floor of the top floor. Um, but in those circumstances, if it's less than 11 metres, the, the, there's no leaseholder protections. The leaseholders pay if that's what the service charge says. Now, I've never known what the difference between, a, you know, why 11 metre high or more buildings should have all these protections if it's 10 metres and 90 centimetres in height. They don't have any of them. Thank you. Yes. Um, another question. If the property is managed by a tenant's management company rather than a freeholder and it's less than 11 metres, who's responsible? It's managed by the, the residence management company. Um, if the yes. residence management company owns the freehold, uh, the leaseholder protections, it's not a relevant building. Leaseholder protections don't apply. But if it's just an intermediate residence management company, you know, don't own the freehold, then the leaseholder protections still apply. So it's exactly the same. If it's an enfranchised uh, building, you know, block, if it's been enfranchised under the 1993 leaseholder reform act collectively by the tenants, then the leaseholder protections don't apply either. Uh, or if it's been purchased under right of first refusal under part one of the 87 Landlord and Tenant Act or compulsorily purchased under part three, uh, they don't apply either. I think the idea is that you know, you'd just be you know, claiming against yourselves in those circumstances. So the leaseholder protections are not really relevant. Yeah, possibly this is a similar question, actually, but somebody saying the legislation does not apply to resident resident management companies who own the freehold. But if they own the freehold, why would they not be responsible? Well, that's that's probably, you know, that's the answer. I mean, they're going to be responsible yeah. anyway. Would you just be claiming against yourselves, really? Which stranger things happen yeah. with residence management companies, Lizzie? OK, one last question to finish. Um, does a request for a management pack constitute notice of selling a property? Yeah, because I mean, I presume it's you know the reason this is important because uh, if a landlord becomes aware of um, the, the, the leaseholder intends to sell the property, they have to produce the landlord certificate, uh, and so it is quite significant. You know, they've got a sort of five day time period. Um, it doesn't make clear, you know, in the legislation like most of the things it doesn't make clear, but if you just make a request through the, via the agents for the pack or you know send an LPE one, they sold flat management inquiry through. For me, that's sufficient uh, notice to the landlord through their agents. Uh, if you want to be safe about it, you might just, you know, the conveyances, you might just make ASAP uh, a specific request to the landlord. 
So probably yes, but you might want to just play play it safe. And uh, I think that's it, Lizzie. Excellent. Thank you very much, Richard. I'm sure we'll be back talking about it again soon. No doubt we will. Thank you very much, Richard, and thank you to everybody for listening. We'll see you again in our next episode.